been a long time, Dave. Yeah. I'm hopefully people have caught up with all the episodes that we've we pumped out over the past uh, couple of weeks. The Summit Marathon, I felt like I was like live broadcasting it and, and dumping off MP3s and just like an incredible backlog for, for you to go through and our audience to go through. But the feedback's been positive, huh? Yeah, no, people really liked, well, first of all, it sounds like people liked the length, uh, which is to say they liked them short. Um, they liked that they were in kind of 20-minute digestible chunks. Um, so I'm waiting for a uh, waiting for an I told you so from Dan Reisacker. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, we're going to try and keep this one short too, right? We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we were ruthless, uh, cause we did have like two or three weeks worth of stuff piled up and I think we got, we got, we got, we got it whittled down into a, a pretty nice show. Um, yeah. uh, we got to, what, uh, procurement disasters, past, present, and future. Um, yep. got a piece from, uh, Matt Mycenae about uh, cloud arbitrage, um, over in Chicago. Um, yep. some, amazing banana slug news uh with regard to storage uh and then uh, we recently outed large hadron collider uh, over Mm -hmm. at cern as a rail customer um so it would be fun to talk about that and uh and also homesteading on the cloud uh kind of how you can build your own uh infrastructure uh for build your own how you can build your own cloud infrastructure uh, without being reliant on kind of third parties to hold your data uh, which is like red meat for us right Yes. Yeah, I'm sure uh, Adam is thinking about own cloud right now. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and it's not own cloud. And it's not own cloud. That's right. Um, it's actually even more clever than own cloud, I think. But we, we can talk about it later. Um, but if folks want links to this homesteading system, mm-hmm. uh, they need more banana slug information. Uh, where do they go, Dave? They want to go to dgshow.org. So D's and Dave, G's and Gunner, show.org. Mm-hmm. And and what did we what did we leave on the considerable cutting room floor this week? Oh, a ton. We like you said, we were ruthless. Um, so we we got Linux based drones. Uh, we got a Mercedes based El Camino, um, and uh, Lauren passed along uh, a, a tumbler of uh, Ryan uh, Goslin as a developer. So for uh, so for follow up, uh, you remember on our previous show, I was trying to remember what the name of this product was that let yes. you plug in. Uh, hard drives into this device and then it became this kind of like distributed Dropbox that you could do with your friends and family. The name yeah. of that thing is the transporter. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, Hackpad, um, which is like the commercial Etherpad, mm-hmm. I guess is the best way to describe it. Um, so Dropbox bought them, which is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And and hopefully, like I keep going back to them to check on them to see how, how they're doing. And they still have that... Uh, like if I want to be able to save the files in Dropbox, I need to authorize Hackpad to be able to see all of Dropbox as opposed to just a directory. Um, right. So hopefully that gets better. But then again, if they're owned by Dropbox, they can already see my data anyhow. So I don't know. Right. Just like kind of consolidating your concerns into one company seems pretty efficient. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. It sort of <laughs> takes that off the table. Yeah. Um, speaking of consolidating concerns into one company, um, uh, we mentioned that Microsoft had open sourced MS DOS, mm-hmm. and uh, and friend of the show David A. Wheeler uh, actually reminded us that that is not the case. Yes, yeah. because um, it wasn't exactly open sourcing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So uh, they put the code out there, uh, but the it was a, a copyright license. It was more like a look, don't touch sort of copyright. So you could you could look at it, you could study it, um, but you can't like fork it or do anything with it and all that. 
Right, right. All right, well, that, which is disappointing. Um, but it did give us an opportunity to get on a little email exchange with David, and we're actually going to have him on the next show. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. So I'm excited about that. Yep. Yeah, so if anybody's got, uh, if anybody's got any kind of security nerdery questions, uh, line them up, because uh, uh, we've got one of the world's authorities on uh, secure computing coming on the show next week. Nice. Yep. Uh, let's see. So Dave, actually, this is like late breaking news or maybe not late breaking news, but I only just read this blog post like five minutes before we started this call. Um, this is, uh, one of these like trigger warning things. Um, apparently the state of New Jersey, uh, its new it strategy is to consolidate all of their procurements into one vendor or, or rather an alliance of vendors, Hmm. um, which blows me away, um, that, they believe that this could actually get some efficiency or like won't do permanent or like irrevocable damage uh, to the state. Um, this this kind of consolidation of vendors was in vogue like 10 years ago, I guess. And so you had states like Virginia, um, the U.S. Navy did it with NMCI. Um, mm-hmm. You had uh, the U.K. government uh, consolidated all their procurement into like a small number of, of vendors. And in every single case, it's been like a total disaster. And so I'm just... I don't have any more commentary on it. I'm just like flabbergasted that somebody is brave enough to actually float the idea again. Um, and it's not like New Jersey is uh, unsophisticated, right? I mean, this is mm-hmm. like a very populous, prosperous, fairly you know advanced state. Um, anyway, I'm just I'm, I'm blown away. Um, I feel like someone should go talk to them about this. This is a real problem. Maybe I should send them to the blog post I just did on the new UK IT policy, uh, mm. which is outstanding. Um, so the UK government in January put out this new set of policies that draw some like bright lines in IT procurement. And they're not like uh, hard and fast rules. They're more like if you do these things or if you exceed these limits, you are going to get a whole bunch of unpleasant scrutiny. Hmm. Um, which I think is a nice way of doing it. Uh, so as an example, if you are doing an IT procurement over a hundred million pounds, um, you are going to get a whole lot more attention, um, hmm. which I think is, which I think is excellent. Um, there's other stuff like if you made a system or if you built or integrated a system, you're not allowed to maintain it. Um, which I think is also a very good idea. Um, mm-hmm. you know, kind of cre- creating these like clean breaks between, and, and all these rules and there's, you know, four or five other ones, but all these rules are meant to, um, disentangle contractors and integrators, uh, from the projects that they work on. Right. So that the government doesn't get locked into, you know, a small number of suppliers like they've been for the last 10 years. So, um, a really wonderful set of rules. Um, anyway, I wrote it all up. Uh, you can go check out a the blog post in the, uh, in the show notes. Yep. Yeah. And you're, you're doing some missionary work. Um, next week, right? I am. I am. The, the team over in, actually, as people listen to it, it'll be this week. Uh, it went, as you were listening to this, I will be in London, um, spreading the good news, um, Mm -hmm. with, uh, with our team in the UK. Uh, so I'm actually really looking forward to this. Um, I did this, I guess a year and a half, maybe two years ago. Um, Mm -hmm. and since then the whole UK, um, IT strategy has changed um, and done really exciting things like the policies I just talked about. So I'm, I'm very excited to talk to some of the ministry ministries about um, how that's affected their work and, and how those reforms are going. Um, so it should be pretty fun. Yeah. And you could, maybe you should stop by New Jersey on your way home. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Just park outside uh, Trenton and uh, wait for someone to talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You could, yeah. You could pick it or something. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So, well, one of the things that you mentioned it intrigues me that I would think that if 
I, I understand why, you know, if somebody builds it, they're not allowed to maintain it because that prevents that whole lock-in. But doesn't it also create a negative incentive on the person building it to not care about the maintenance? Or do they have any, would they have any incentive? Like what incentive do they have mm -hmm. about the long-term viability of something after it's fielded? Well, that's a great question. And this is, uh, that's in fact one of the questions I have for these folks when I go over and talk to them. Um, I, you know, at heart, I think the answer is probably there's no replacement for good project management, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's, no, you know, ultimately you just need someone responsible and forward thinking, taking care of the programs and projects. Because um, you can't, you know, you can't create a policy. You know, <laughs> if we could define all this stuff in policy uh, and wind it up and let it go, then we would never need uh, contract managers or program managers or, or project staff, right? Um, ultimately, these people have to exercise some discretion um, and uh, ha take some responsibility for how they're spending people's money. Um, so I think that's probably a good portion of the answer, uh, but I'm really curious to hear what they have to say, because you're right, um, that is, uh, it's a t it cuts both ways. Yeah, yeah, I would love to see some sort of incentive that that it's like if, the sustaining people don't have cost overruns. Maybe the the people that made the product um, get some sort of bonus. Sort of like how like if mm -hmm. if people complete a construction project early, they get they get more money. Yeah. Well, I mean, you talk to any economist, and you know, as soon as you put incentives like that in place, like cash bonuses or whatever, you incent people to manage to the metric uh, mm -hmm. rather than the success of the program, right? Mm -hmm. um, so so if you're going to give somebody a bonus for putting out thirty thousand units. They will do exactly that. They'll put out thirty thousand units, but they will make a bunch of other unpleasant compromises elsewhere. Um, yes. So that so that's sort of like a really tricky way of managing the the program. Um, I think one answer that a lot of people are wrestling with right now, or a lot of governments are wrestling with right now, and private in the private sector as well, is actually eliminating the distinction between kind of the producer and the maintainer. Um, and I hesitate to use this term because it's so overloaded, but like almost like a more DevOps approach, right? Where mm -hmm. I mean, the whole reason why we think about like development and then maintenance as two different things is because of this waterfall model. Mm -hmm. um, but if we instead think about our IT portfolio or an IT project as something that's really like organic, like something that needs to be like care and fed and watered um, over time, you know, something whose life cycle, the entire life cycle needs to get managed. Um, I think getting out of the mode of this, this waterfall deployment and thinking more carefully about uh, how does this thing grow up? How does it become mature? And then how do we retire it at the end? Um, mm -hmm. That might also open up some uh, some new ways of, of thinking about managing these projects. Um, anyway, the, my thinking on this, I, I feel, is a little bit jumbled. Uh, again, I'm, I'm hoping for more clarity um, after next week. Uh, but it's, a, it's interesting to see so many governments trying to reform their IT purchasing policies, right? Um, yep. You saw that just we had Van Rokel just this week was testifying before Congress um, asking, you know, asking, he's basically justifying uh, the IT budget going from $80 billion to $82 billion. Um, and he's asking for another $20 million to create a task force that is going to figure out why the $80 billion is being spent wrong. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it just, it's, so, you know, the U.S. is obviously struggling with this, with healthcare.gov and the rest of it. The U.K. is obviously making these, like, really bold moves, trying to struggle with it. New Jersey's also struggling with it, but headed in a completely different direction. Um, I think it's, it's 
fascinating to me that, you know, we've been doing this for almost 40 years now and still don't quite know how to do IT procurement uh, and acquisition. Um, I think the, the whole topic is fascinating for me. Um, but that's a sickness. That's a sickness. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, okay, let's talk. I could talk about this forever. So let's, what's, uh, Speak, what's Speaking next? of health. <laughs> yeah. Oh, nice. Nice. Good segue. Yeah. Yeah. So what's uh, Nike has stopped making the fuel band? Yeah, so the the this is their data collection tool, right? It's the little bracelet that uh, yeah. Nike makes. Uh, it's like got an accelerometer in it and and some other stuff. Uh, uh, anyway, they stopped making the hardware, which I think is really interesting. Um, the service still exists, uh, but they're not making the uh, the wristbands or the the fobs anymore. Um, and mm. uh, one of the one of the, uh, the one of the assumptions here is that your phone will actually become the collection tool. Oh. Um, and that they no longer need to actually manufacture a piece of hardware to do it because phones will take over that job, which makes a lot of sense, right? We talked about the, uh, the a seven chip and the new iPhone, yep. Yep. uh, or I'm sorry, the M three, I think it is in the, mm -hmm. in the new iPhone and the new Androids for that matter. Um, and so, I mean, the decision actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, um, I mean, I, on the other hand, I know I, I'm using a Fitbit force, um, yes. which you'll remember is the thing that got recalled for giving people rashes. Um, yes. I, I do not yet have a rash, uh, okay. at least not one that I know of, but, uh, I, I really like it being a discrete separate item. Um, yeah. cause I don't actually want to carry my phone around with me all the time. Um, yeah, that's what I was going to say is that if you mm -hmm. go, um, like when I'm at home, my phone is like on my desk plugged in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so having a, uh, having a purpose built piece of equipment, um, I mean, the battery on this thing lasts almost a week. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't really think about it, uh, because it's always on my wrist. Uh, it really is like, I, I forget that I'm wearing it, um, mm -hmm. which is exactly kind of how it's supposed to work. Right. Um, so anyway, it's, uh, I, I can understand why Nike would make this decision because it makes sense for Nike. Um, but I think kind of for as far as consumer preferences go, like how people will want this to trend, um, I would be surprised if we end up sticking all this stuff into phones, um, especially for this kind of quantified self stuff, because it really does need to be with you all the time in order for it to be worthwhile. Yeah, I could imagine it being something like the size of a pedometer or like a quarter that you just stick in your pocket. Mm -hmm. Or even better, it's going to be, uh, let's say, not too distant future, we'll have implants, right? Right. Just like a right. subcutaneous chip. That uh, connects over like low energy blue, uh, Bluetooth to your phone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and no, no buying, uh, and selling without it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Speaking of evolution of hardware technology, um, I, I saw two articles that were like in almost opposition of each other. Um, where there's one article on ZDNet that talks about. Um, the five te uh, tech things uh, buyers just don't care about. Um, you know, so one of the things that they talk about is like, oh, removable batteries, um, upgradability, and so things like the desktop PC. You know, where mm -hmm. you know nobody buys desktop PCs, or or even with laptops anymore. You know, in theory, people don't. You buy a laptop, but you don't upgrade it. Um, you end up mm -hmm. buying a new one, um, and that is in contrast with um, there's. Um, some articles that came out about Google's Project Aura, which um, is a modular sort of cell phone. So instead, it's almost, think of it as like a bunch of Lego bricks that you snap together. If you want a higher resolution screen or a newer GPS unit, you can just unsnap that and snap in a new one. And um, 
and you can grow your own cell phone and your own however you want. Um, hmm. But to me, it's like they, they were at odds with each other. Um, and in my case, I, I don't know about you, but I'm the, I'm still the kind of guy that likes to repair my own computer and you know with mm-hmm. the laptop and you know have, being able to take it apart um, and fix things is uh, I, I like doing. Um, and I, you know, I, I the cell phone I have now is something that I'm probably going to keep for what two years or so. So if the battery dies, yeah, I'll replace it. But still, I think with um, some of the more expensive hardware, I, I kind of like having the modularity and the ability to upgrade or repair it mm-hmm. at least. What, yeah, do, you, what well, do you think? Yeah, I mean, you hit on something really important there, which is like for an expensive item, right? Um, <laughs> so like a Chromebook, I don't need that to be field upgradable, right? I don't need that to. Um, I spent 200 bucks on it, and if I need a new one, I'll just spend another 200 bucks. Um, yes. Whereas with a phone, well, two things. So first of all, a phone is kind of a more expensive piece of equipment, I guess, per pound. Um, but it's also uh, a less well-defined technology, right? Um, mm-hmm. So like a laptop, I know pretty much exactly what I want a laptop to do. Um, and so the notion of taking a laptop, adding something to it, and having to do something totally different is that used to be something that I wanted to do. Uh, but like a lot of laptops don't ship with CD-ROMs anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just because that's not important. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think as the product becomes better defined, it becomes less interesting to modify it, right? Like you don't need new modules for your toaster. Um, mm-hmm. And so I can see why this would make sense in the context of like a smartphone where there is so much innovation going on um, and the stakes are so high in terms of like what a customer has to invest. Um, but it, but it is also still true, like the ZDNet article says, um, that it doesn't make sense to in, include a bunch of modularity in a laptop. Um, all that's going to do is raise the price. And yes. once you're down in the two $300 range, it, it barely matters, right? Unless you're, like, as you say, unless you're a hobbyist or a tinkerer. Yeah, yeah. Or, um, and I would, I would think, too, that a laptop is a little more complicated. So, like, you can, you know, as where it has, like, a hard drive that could fail or... A lot, of, a lot more moving parts that could fail, and to be without it is um, would be harder. Um, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, also, I mean, with a laptop, we actually have. Now that I'm thinking about it more, I mean, we actually have figured out the modularity problem on a laptop, and it's mm-hmm. USB, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Like, if we need something new on the laptop, we just plug it in and plug in a plug it into the USB port. Um, there's no real USB equivalent um, on a phone, except maybe Bluetooth. Um, so I can I can see why the project R would make sense. Yep. Yeah. Cool. So we haven't talked about Matt Mycenae in a while. Yeah, it's been like episodes. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we miss him. Um, so he sent us something a little while ago. The Chicago Mercantile Exchange, who happens to be a Red Hat customer, um, they plan to do a spot a cloud spot exchange. So um, you, I guess you could buy futures in. Uh, cloud capacity or, or yeah, I don't know, storage networking and all that. And you could sort of, you could buy it and then, um, and just like you can buy futures in orange juice or, or pork bellies or whatever. I'd say, and this, this was like, uh, I kind of rolled my eyes when I read this. Um, Cause just knowing what I know about the market, like how could this even work? Right. Like right. is uh, like, I understand treating it as a commodity makes a certain amount of sense, but like very simple things like the unit of measure are not agreed on, right? Mm-hmm. Like I don't even know, no, there is no kind of one agreed upon uh, like chunk of computing. Like nobody knows what that is really. Um, yes. 
we do have that for storage, I guess, and, and possibly for networking, but for like CPUs, there's no, and especially with different platforms and stuff like that, it seems like a very tricky thing to standardize in that way. Um, on the other hand, I guess it's also like a really bold move to say, because this is obviously going to happen, right? Um, mm -hmm. There will be a spot exchange for cloud computing resources. There's just no doubt about it. Um, you know, networks are getting good enough and the workloads are becoming portable enough where that actually makes sense. Um, I guess the one thing that I do draw from it is the spot exchanges only make sense if you can move your workloads somewhere else, right? Yes. So if you are if you are lashed to Amazon's APIs or their kind of secondary services like say S3 uh, or Beanstalk or whatever it is, um, you are not going to be able to go take advantage of a lower price on Rackspace. Mm -hmm. um, or, or if it's not just APIs and that sort of lock-in, but the the size of data. What if you have a couple terabytes of data and you know mm -hmm. to move that to another cloud provider is harder. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Exactly right. Exactly right. Um, so I think like on paper, it makes sense to do the exchange, but I think there's still a lot of kind of technical and uh, I guess business hurdles uh, to making that possible. But I suppose, you know, the <laughs> Chicago Mercantile Exchange is kind of skating to where the puck is going to be. Right. Um, yep. So better to announce this now and have have uh, have it in place uh, when it's technically possible, rather than try to play catch up in five years. And there is a patent pending for their technology. And maybe that's the actual headline, right? <laughs> Not so much that they have a trading platform for this, but that they have patented the trading platform for this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Amazing. Cool. Uh, so what's going on? Uh, and it, we suddenly got that all these workshops are popping yes. up. Um, we missed a number of them uh, because of the summit and the break that we took. But uh, there's a BRMS workshop, right, coming up? Yep. Um, yeah. We've got Emergence a, a, doing that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. With us. Uh, yeah. And so I think the next one is going to be in Dallas on the 15th. Um, there's a bunch of other ones. We'll include a link to that in the show notes. Um, and the folks from Red Hat Storage. Uh, are doing a series of workshops, which should be especially interesting because of the Ink Tank acquisition, Dave. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so do you want to do you want to talk about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Ink Tank, um, they have an open source project and product. It's called Ceph, uh, C E P H for like uh, cephalopod. Um, and so um, they have a. There, it was a competing technology against Red Hat Storage, especially like in the you know software defined storage, um, big data space, especially around cloud computing. So that's where uh, if people wanted to do storage with, say, OpenStack, um, two of the big choices were uh, Ceph and, um, as well as Red Hat Storage. And in, and in many ways, uh, Ceph wound up having the bigger mind share. Uh, so now the uh, Red Hat's acquisition of them will give us, uh, I think it's about like 37% of the workloads that um, the, the storage workloads will either be um, Ceph-based or Red Hat storage-based. So it's kind mm -hmm. of, it's very interesting. And um, it sounds like from a strengths uh, standpoint that um, Red Hat storage is very strong in terms of the file-based uh, storage as well as object-based storage where Ceph was more uh, famous for their block-based storage uh, as well as objects. So it's it's very complementary to one another as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so I, I'm really excited that we now have access to the talent for like pretty much all the meaningful um, software-based 
uh, storage solution, like cloud storage solutions um, out there. Uh, I mean, between as you say, between Ceph and Cluster, that's pretty much the whole that's the whole show uh, mm -hmm. for OpenStack, right? Um, and so uh, to be able to have that under the hood uh, for stuff like OpenShift and, and OpenStack and Rev, um, I think is going to be pretty cool. I'm kind of mm -hmm. I'm excited to see where we take that. Yes. Yeah, I'm excited too. Yeah. And and you saw some other things with OpenShift and Hortonworks. Yeah, so Horton, um, these are the OG Hadoop guys, right? These are the guys from Yahoo who who actually did the Hadoop, the first Hadoop implementation. Um, they spun off another Hortonworks. Uh, the Hortonworks data platform is their flagship product, and the Hortonworks guys are working together with our OpenShift guys uh, to kind of bring the two worlds together. Um, if you've you know if you've ever done um, a Hadoop or like a big data. Uh, project, you know that it more or less lives like over in a corner of the data center. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's its own silo. Um, they have their own language. They have their own, literally have their own languages, like weird, crazy programming languages like Erlang. Um, and uh, and then on the OpenShift side, uh, you've got these kind of like scale out, uh, largely kind of web-based applications. Um, but they're, uh, they can actually complement each other. Um, and so they're doing some really interesting work on uh, helping applications built on OpenShift be uh, kind of co-resident with the Hortonworks stuff. Um, so you don't have to worry about uh, where the data is and introducing you know, kind of inefficiency because the application isn't close enough to the data. Um, so they're actually figuring out ways of uh, deploying an OpenShift application and giving it a kind of much more direct access to uh, to the data being managed by by the Hortonworks product. Um, mm -hmm. So really interesting stuff. There's more explanation on the blog post that we link to in the uh, in the show notes, but people should definitely check that out. Nice. Yeah, and uh, and that's not the only cool thing that uh, OpenShift guys are working on. Um, we talked about a bunch of the work that they announced at Summit, um, but we did want to spend some time talking about GearD, which I don't think we touched on actually in any mm -hmm. of the interviews. Um, so Dave, you want to talk about GearD a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So um, GearD is, is, I look at it as sort of like uh, the glue that helps us uh, uh, connect um, the components between, uh, say, like with OpenShift and Docker and, and do like a lot of the plumbing work. Um, and it, it's really interesting. So there's, there's an article that Matt Hicks wrote on the uh, OpenShift uh, blog where he talks about it uh, in detail. So um, one of the things that, that GearD is working on is being able to take an application and go from Git to a Docker image like right away. So instead of people having the pain of, oh my gosh, I'm doing an RPM for um, RHEL and I got to figure out all the dependencies for RHEL and then if I need to do it for um, all these other different things, it's, it's, it's pretty painful. Um, and then the other thing that they do is, is um, container wiring. So within uh, a container, you could you could use GearD to set up the networking between the different gears and or the, between the different containers. But the really slick thing is that um, GearD would manage that and the network connectivity between. And so they don't necessarily have to be on the same uh, same system, um, and just making it really easy to use too. So I, I think with if you start looking at things like the next version of of OpenShift, it's going to embrace a lot of the things like Docker and GearD and all that and Project Atomic where um, in the past, it was very monolithic inside of OpenShift, but now having these separate projects that could work independently, I, I think is really exciting. And so they can, they can move a lot faster um, in their own direction and be really good at what they're doing without having to have the rest of a, a large project um, holding them back or, or stalling them. 
Mm -hmm. And it'll make it easier too for OpenShift, the kind of core technologies inside OpenShift to work together with complementary stuff like uh, decomposing OpenShift into these component parts like Docker and Atomic and Gear D are going to make yep. it easier for it to work with stuff like Heat and Solum and the other stuff happening over in the OpenStack world, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's very much like instead of forcing people to do an OpenShift um, cartridge, they could do it as a you know a, a Docker uh, container, and and mm -hmm. so, but we're also not forcing you know the Docker people to pick up. OpenShift isms, you know, and or or vice versa. So it's it's a really nice way to you know just work independently and achieve a lot more a lot faster. Yeah, yeah. I you know I don't know what they're drinking over there at the Open OpenShift team, but um, I'm just consistently surprised and kind of excited about the work that they're doing. Um, it's really very cool. Um, and apparently Dell agrees. Uh, so Dell announced at Summit. Um, that they are partnering up with us on a bunch of stuff, right? Uh, before Dell used to be, uh, when they were selling OpenStack, uh, they were doing, I think, the canonical OpenStack. Um, but they have gone all in with our OpenStack now instead, um, and they've moved over to uh, uh, doing kind of an integrated um, kind of OpenShift and, and container stuff with uh, uh, with their hardware, um, which is very cool. Um, and, and a nice little endorsement of our strategy, of course. Um, so yeah. that's nice. Um, but it is, it is cool to see both Cisco and Dell um, kind of giving us the thumbs up and starting to publish um, kind of prepackaged solutions. Um, listen to me, I sound like a sales guy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> kind of prepackaged like pre uh, pre solutions for, uh, that have our stuff in it. Uh, that's always nice to see. That's cool. Yeah. Well, I know like you got like uh, VBlock and FlexPod and all these really nice engineered systems for and and customers like that because it's it's something that you know a, a consortium of vendors have put together instead of um, you know having uh, multiple vendors throw stuff at you for you to assemble yourself and it's different every time and all that um, mm -hmm. and and this also reminds me and where of uh, you know people were very successful with that where like VMware was in the center for. Uh, virtualized infrastructure, and now it looks like um, RHEL OpenStack platform is being that component for um, people wanting to do infrastructure as a service. So there, you know, Cisco, Dell, and others are coming up with these um, engineered uh, complete solutions that that have that at the core for people that want to do that. So I think that's mm -hmm. really compelling. And like we were saying, I mean, this is now we're moving slowly into like speculation place, but. Um, the fact, like we were talking about earlier, the fact that a lot of these technologies, in part because they're open source, are modular, um, it means that the work that Cisco and Dell do to make OpenShift easier to use um, can actually end up making OpenStack easier to use, right? Mm -hmm. um, so if Dell is doing work to make containers easier to use, um, that benefits a bunch of, a bunch of products at once, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. Um, very, I mean, very much in the same way that, um, you know, certifying Linux or having these companies contribute to the Linux kernel, um, actually helps everybody. Right. Um, it's kind of similar, similar kind of dynamic there, which I like. Yep. I agree. Yeah. Uh, Hey Dave, you want to tell me about a customer you like? Yeah. CERN. Yep. CERN. So, yeah. Aren't they Swiss? They're Swiss, right? Yep. Yeah. Well, they're I guess international consortium. There's you know people from all over the world are are doing stuff. Um, mm -hmm. But the latest thing that uh, I saw that is that they're using um, RHEL uh, for some of their most critical applications, like their um, large uh, hadron collider logging server and um, and their HR systems and all that. And uh, they're also using a lot of Rev 
uh, uh, to tell the difference between matter and antimatter. That's so cool. That's so cool. Um, I, did, I, I had an old boss who worked on a uh, who worked on a collider once, and he said that um, it was it, uh, it was a kind of, it was a crazy job because you do these like months of work setting up an experiment, and then the experiment is over in like a fraction of a second, and then you spend the next six months going through the data. Um, wow. So like yeah, so so when you talk about like the logging server for the for the Hadron Collider, um, you're talking about you know just generating terabytes of information in a very short amount of time and then just kind of chewing on it for months. Um, uh, just like a really fascinating and probably infuriating kind of a workload. Like not a lot of people have that kind of work in that fashion. Right. Um, yeah. so just really, yeah, really interesting use case. Really. Interesting. Yeah. And it's, it's like launching a spaceship, you know, it's like you pray you did it right. right. And you know, and you, yeah. <laughs> cause otherwise you got to go back to the table and, yeah, you, know, you may have like a zombie outbreak or something. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, and you saw the zombie movie, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, they they yeah. filmed the uh, zombie movie there. <laughs> and so we'll include a link to that in the show notes. It's pretty great. Is the the collider is a nice setting for a zombie movie? Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, good for them. Nerds making zombie movies and Hadron colliders. Uh, it's pretty great. Let's see. Uh, oh, Dave, I found. Um, I found some red meat for us. Uh, so, you know, we're constantly talking about uh, kind of our own privacy and how we handle our data online and talking about Dropbox and the consequences of like Google product decisions and stuff like this. And um, there's this whole subculture of geeks uh, trying to solve these kinds of problems. Um, and uh, one of them, uh, somebody recently pointed this out to me, uh, it's a project called Sovereign. Mm -hmm. And what it is is a set of Ansible playbooks, right? So like server recipes, basically, for creating your own service. So um, if you need uh, your own Twitter, your own email, your own uh, whatever, uh, Google+, IRC, et cetera, et cetera, um, this Sovereign project gives you all the recipes for building that stuff so you don't have to go out and like do all the hand tooling yourself, um, which I think is pretty clever um, and a really active project. Um, I've been following it on GitHub for a while now, and I mean, there's probably every day there's like new patches and, and people opening issues and closing issues. So it's, it's, you know, actively developed. It's not just like somebody dumped a bunch of bits on a server. Um, mm. So uh, it's really cool to see a community built up around this idea of uh, making it easy for people to, uh, uh, I think they, they refer to it as like homesteading uh, on the internet, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is pretty cool. That's pretty neat. Wow. So would you, uh, Dave, would you use something like that? To me, it's like I trust somebody else more than I trust myself because I'm, I'm not an operations kind of guy, like in terms mm -hmm. of backups and all that. So it's like I, right. I gladly will sacrifice a little bit of privacy um, for you know, a certain level of content uh, to ha and pay somebody to do that for me. Um, but yeah, I, you're I, a, I do. You're know, a traitor to the cause, Dave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I just don't, I don't trust myself. Um, and then. The other part is, uh, I, I do agree that there are. I, I worry about vendor abandonment. Mm -hmm. With you know, like you see Google trying things out and then they kill it. They try something, they kill it, and all that. And for so many things that people have been, you know, counting on, and then they kill it off. It has to be maddening. And and do you really want to? But for certain things that are not like core things, you got to make sure that you have an exit strategy. Um, and so having something like this, I think is a great idea. 
Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I agree. Um, and, and honestly, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm willing to make the same compromise you are. Um, I'm, I'm pretty lazy. Um, and so offloading this stuff to somebody else. Uh, but again, as you say, knowing that I have an exit strategy makes it a lot easier. Um, kind of helps me sleep at night. Yep. Um, let's see. So, uh, without airing any internal dirty laundry, Dave, uh, over the last few weeks, there's been a lot of bickering internally, uh, on various subjects. Um, yes. and so I was wondering if you have any hints on how to, how to stop colleagues from bickering about uh, kind of trivial matters. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I saw an article in Ars Technica about this. Um, and it was, they, it was basically, it was some Q and A site and they summarized some of the top answers. And it was pretty interesting that, you know, one of the things that, that I thought was probably the most important part was, um, like basically the question was like, well, whenever I, you know, I had this meeting, I put code up on the screen and people were, you know, throwing darts at, you know, whether it's my commenting style or how I was indenting and all that, but it was really different. That's not what I wanted that to get their input from. And so, you know, they provided all kind of feedback that was like off topic. And so how do I keep them on topic? And, you know, one of the things that they said was, was, well, you know, have an agenda and, and being able to say that, look, this is what the meeting is about. And, and this is what is in scope and everything that is out of scope. Um, you know, somebody said, well, let's have a parking lot where um, you're able to, you know, take something that is like off topic. You could write it down on the marker board and come back to it at the end of the meeting. But whoever is not interested in that particular topic is free to go, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, prevents you from going down rat holes. Um, but there's another thing that they talked about, too, is whenever somebody is providing feedback, you don't want to be you don't want to. Uh, describe their concerns as trivialities or uh, say that they are doing bike shedding because that, Mm -hmm. because they'll feel insulted. um, And, you know, and, but they're, and they may have valid concerns, but they may not be valid for the the scope of the conversation you're having, which goes back to having a, a quality agenda set up to say that, look, this is what we're talking about. We're not really talking about the font size or whatever. We're, we're talking about more of the message. Um, and, and you focus on that. So I, I thought that was pretty good. Yeah, no, that is pretty good. I, I'm reminded, I mean, both of us have been through uh, the design thinking training, I think, right? Um, I haven't. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. So um, it's a really interesting way of uh, kind of formalizing a uh, collaborative process. Mm-hmm. Um, and it solves the problem in a kind of a similar way, but it's, I think it's different in, in a, the way it's different is interesting. Um, in the design thinking process, you set aside a portion of the time uh, or a portion of the project for uh, uh, for coming up with ideas. Uh, so in the case of like code review, it would be, okay, you think my commenting style is great? Great, I'm going to write that down. You think I need to use brackets in a different way? Great, I'm going to write that down. And like basically there's no wrong answers. You just get it all down on paper. And then you do a separate process, which is triaging and saying what's important and what's not. Um, mm-hmm. and so by kind of compartmentalizing or making those two things, making those two steps, um, it makes sure that everybody feels like they're heard. Um, and it also makes sure that, uh, if the person running the meeting comes in with a set of like preconceived notions, um, and like maybe they need to be persuaded in a different direction, um, they don't end up, uh, kind of squashing useful dissent. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, it's interesting. So you can kind of scope by topic, um, 
or, you know, scope by your own agenda, or you can scope by, okay, no, we're not brainstorming right now. We're, we're filtering now. Right. Right. Um, that was a really interesting way of, of, uh, interesting way of solving the problem. Um, and while still kind of maximizing all the, all the good ideas that could bubble up in a meeting, um, mm -hmm. it was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the other thing too, is that there are different types of meetings where, you know, mm -hmm. one is like you're informing somebody. Another one is you're making a decision. Uh, another mm -hmm. one is you're brainstorming. And, you know, you don't want to brainstorm at an information session that is meant to be one way that I'm communicating the way it is. Um, right. You know, cause the, the train has already left. Um, mm -hmm. and, and letting that know, letting people know that up front is, is good. So I'd, I had a mentor... Uh, a while back. Um, I think it might even have been the same guy that was worked on the collider. Um, and he told me something that has been really useful for me in the past. I wonder if you think it's, it's true. Uh, he said, um, don't ever walk into a meeting thinking that a decision is going to be made. Um, hmm. meetings are held after decisions are made, which I thought was really interesting. I'd said that had never occurred to me, but, uh, but I mean, in truth, you know, a lot of the meetings I go into, uh, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, not a lot of decisions get made, uh, inside meetings. I mean, a lot of them are either ratifying a decision that's already been made, um, or coming up with possible options. Mm -hmm. Um, and very rarely is the decision actually made in the room. Is that, is that your experience too? Or am I just being, paranoid? Oh, totally. Yeah. A lot of times mm -hmm. it's the culmination of, of weeks or months of work. Um, and then it's like, here's a checkpoint and you know, we've, you know, let us know mm -hmm. what you think. Hopefully, you know, that yeah. they solicit input. Yeah. And I, so I, th I think you're right. Like knowing what kind of meeting you're walking into is like really important. Um, mm -hmm. again, that's why agendas are so important. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause if you walk into a meeting thinking it's a brainstorming meeting and it's a, uh, it's an inf informational meeting, then you're, you're going to, you, you will not have a good time. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Nobody else will totally. either. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Cool. Uh, all right, Dave. Well, uh, we did our best here. I think we actually came in at a, at a pretty good time. Um, any, any parting thoughts? Well, where should everybody go to get all like these pictures of Brian Gosling and, and all these, all these El Caminos? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so El Camino Central can be found at, uh, dgshow.org. Uh, that's D as in Dave, G as in Gunner, show.org. Great. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and so uh, thanks everyone for listening and uh, we'll see you next week with uh, Dr. David A. Wheeler awesome thanks everybody thanks Gunnar